All right, so we've got a little narrative passage this morning in Acts chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 19. I'm going to read through the whole passage, and then we are going to come back and unpack it a little bit. Starting in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood, uh, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May the Lord God bless the reading of his word this morning. So what we have here is a tidy little narrative of these Three little, three little sections, events, we're going to walk through uh, here. It's so, sometimes you get uh, a little bit like what Jay had last week, and you get these really long chunks that are really great for understanding history and really difficult to preach in like 40 minutes. Uh, and uh, this week, I got an easy one. Jay is kind. And so he gave me one that gives us uh, these neat, there's three neat little uh, narratives here that all kind of piece together, and we're going to look at each one. Um, uh, because sometimes when the way the author is laying out the information, he's trying to communicate a big block of really important information, and sometimes the way the author of a particular letter or book in Scripture communicates it is because he's wanting us to see something. He's wanting us to notice what is happening. They're highlighting certain things. They're not just like writing out cold, hard facts. These are people that are wanting to communicate truths about who Jesus is, who his church is, and what's going on. And, and Luke does an, uh, an excellent job in, that, uh, in this little passage this morning. So, rewinding back to the beginning, what we see is uh, there is a, the persecution that, that arises as a result of Stephen. And so Stephen, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, was, uh, was the first martyr of the Christian church. And following his murder, uh, the, the religious leaders uh, begin to persecute the Christians and, and scatter them. Historically, one of the most effective means by which to advance the gospel is the persecution of believers. 
So if you want to prune your church of spectators and nominal attenders and galvanize your people into a faithful community of fully committed followers of Jesus, then make it illegal to be a Christian. It's incredibly effective. If you want an explosion of faith in foreign countries, chase all the Christians out of yours. So Stephen is murdered, and in this persecution, people flee Jerusalem and spread out all over the Middle East and North Africa and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ with them to places that had not yet heard. And churches start popping up all over the Mediterranean. So the other way to accomplish that, let's call it the preferable way, is when blessed and comfortable Christians realize that they are blessed in order to be a blessing to others and that the sending God is saving a sent people and that we then leave our places of comfort and complacency and travel to places that do not yet have a gospel presence. And all those who do not go commit to supporting through finances and prayer and continued encouragement to those who go. No persecution required. Just obedience to Jesus in the Bible. I much prefer that method if I'm given the option. Sometimes we're not, but right now we are, so let's take advantage of that and opt for option B while the getting's good. We'll come back to that and explore option B a little more in a few moments. So I want you to notice what were these countries that they're going to. It says they're going to as far as Phoenicia, which is modern Syria, Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean that's just south of modern Turkey, and Antioch, which is located in what is now Turkey. And then we see later there's men coming from Cyprus, again that same island, and Cyrene, which is in what is now Libya. So if you happen to participate in our church history class, you remember that the birthplace of Christianity, the cradle of Christianity, and the hub of world Christianity for the first almost 800 years of its existence was in an area that now we refer to as the 1040 window. A group of countries which are currently the least Christian countries in the world for the first nearly 800 years of Christianity were the most Christian countries in the entire world. We owe them an extraordinary debt of gratitude for preserving and ultimately sending the gospel to us. And it is now our mandate, our responsibility, our privilege, our joy to bring it back to those who gave it to us in the first place. A few more details to look at here. Antioch actually makes perfect sense. The city where this is all beginning to take, take place. It makes sense that Antioch would be a gathering point for displaced Christians. Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, second only to Rome itself, and Alexandria, which was in Egypt. 
It had a huge Jewish population uh, who were where the missionaries went to first. You'll notice that they went speaking only to the Jews. That's two primary reasons for that. First of all, they were all Jews, and so they went to the communities that they were used to hanging out with. Most of them weren't allowed to ever interact with Gentiles, as Jay talked about last week, and so they went to the people that they were most familiar with. Also, Jesus was the fulfillment of Jewish prophecies, and so he's going to the people who understand what these prophecies are, what they were looking for, and saying, hey, the Messiah has come. So they go to third biggest city in the Roman Empire, which is jammed full of Jews, and declare the coming Messiah, or that that the Messiah has, in fact, already come. But then we have these followers of Jesus coming from other cities, coming from Libya, coming from this island of Cyprus. And they start preaching to the Greek-speaking Jews and to the Greek non-Jews. So if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about who the Hellenists were. And and earlier in chapter 6, when we talked about Stephen, the, the Hellenists we described as Uh, as Greek-speaking Jews, because that was the contrast that was happening right there. uh, It was contrasting the Hebrews, or the Aramaic-speaking Jews, with the Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews. But you'll notice here, the contrast is the Jews versus the Hellenists. And so what what we believe, most likely, what Luke is doing is he's kind of zooming out and he's using the more broad term for Hellenist, which is people who have been influenced by Greek culture. And since he's contrasting it with the Jews, not just Jews who speak Aramaic, what seems to be happening here is the people from Libya, the people from Cyprus are now preaching the Lord Jesus to the Greeks. And what happens is that great numbers of them believe. Great numbers. Jerusalem gets a report that the church is exploding in Antioch, and so they send Barnabas to teach and encourage the believers. Man, Scripture can't say enough good stuff about our boy Barney here. He is a good Man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He is faith, a faithful man, a spirit-filled and spirit-led man, a good man. And I love that it says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. So he attributes this explosion of the church to the grace of God. Not to the incredible missionary methods of the Libyans, but that God's grace is being put on extraordinary display. Later, Paul would outline this specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? It's like, Who am I? Right? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And Barnabas is 
before Paul has even written this, is echoing this sentiment of saying, man, it's God who has accomplished this. This is extraordinary, and I want to see what's going on. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I just read this this week, uh, a... uh, an Indian missionary, uh, a missionary to India who was himself Indian uh, in the early 1900s, was once asked, he had gained some pretty extraordinary notoriety for, uh, for his missionary work, and other countries were beginning to ask him to come and speak, and somebody had asked him, how, how do you handle all of the, the accolades, all of, all of the attention that you're getting for being such a successful missionary? And, and I won't say it as well as he did, but, uh, but to paraphrase, what he essentially said is, they're not for me. The accolades are not for me. That's like the ass that Jesus rode into Jerusalem in thinking that the palm branches were for him. I just get to carry Jesus. He's the one who gets the glory. Barnabas was similar in his sentiment. Barnabas, his name is actually Joseph, we saw a few chapters ago in Acts. His name is Joseph. His nickname is Barnabas which means son of encouragement. You have a good reputation and a fantastic gospel witness when you are so encouraging that people just name you the encourager. Comes the encourager. They just stopped calling him Joseph. They don't call him by his name anymore. Now he's the encourager. What he does is he urges the believers there to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose or to purpose in their hearts to remain in the Lord is the way some of the other translations phrase that. To purpose in their hearts to remain in the Lord. That is his encouragement to them. Barnabas is also a recruiter because we see what he does is he goes to Tarsus to seek out Saul who is still Saul, by the way. Remember, contrary to popular assumption, God did not change Saul's name to Paul when he saved him. Saul and Paul are actually the same name. It's just the Jewish way to say it and the Greek way to say it. So he didn't ever have a name change. He just, when he, in a few chapters, when he arrives in the Greek context, then Luke's going to start referring to him by his Greek pronunciation of his name. So here, still Saul, Still, he's in a Jewish context, so he's still going by the Jewish pronunciation of his name or the Hebrew, Hebrew Aramaic pronunciation of his name. So he goes to Tarsus to get Saul, bring him back to Antioch, the missionary church, in order to disciple others. And then eventually Paul and Barnabas are sent out from this church themselves. Now, another thing to point out here, I think, in this passage that's important to note, whenever an author in Scripture is being repetitive, it is safe to assume they are wanting you to notice something. Did you notice what Luke says three times in this passage? Three times he points out, two times he phrases it the exact same way, one way just slightly different. What he points out to us is that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And then later, and a great many people were added 
to the Lord. And then a few verses later, for the whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Luke really wants us to notice that a lot of people are believing in the gospel, are being saved by Jesus, and then are being trained up by the church leaders to be sent out. This is happening to a lot of people. One church leader, a few decades later, records uh, that half of the population of Antioch at one point was Christian. That's a great many people. So what I want us to look at in these three little sections, we haven't gotten to the third one yet, we'll get there in just a second, is three very distinct and I think important markers of the missionary church. The first marker of the missionary church is that it shares the gospel. The missionary church shares the gospel. Okay, we even have a slide that we can throw up there if we're not having technical difficulties. Uh, there it is. Shares the gospel. Verses 19 through 21. What is happening in Antioch is a true movement of God, a revival of the Holy Spirit impacting the entire culture of the city. Okay, people started referring to, you see that little kind of historical fun fact that Luke includes in there. And in Antioch, around this time, that's the first time that they started calling us Christians. They started calling them Christians. Because what this group of people was known for more than anything else was their association with this Jesus guy that they called the Christ. So all these little Christites running around. Everything's all about Jesus with these people. Do everything he says, just like he does. Be just like him. Meanwhile, all the followers of Jesus are like, Christian, I kind of like that. Let's stick with that one. Yeah, we're the ones who associate with Christ. That's who we are. That defines us. And if this local expression of the church, the universal gathering of God's people, if this church is going to be the kind of missionary church that the people who planted this church envisioned that it would be, the people who have led this church for the last over 40 years desired it to be, and the God who established and continues to sustain this church day in and day out desires that it would, then we must be a people who share the gospel. Who are quick to give a winsome explanation for the hope that is within us. We cannot be a people that assume the gospel, either in our own hearts or in those around us. I've had too many conversations with some of you who have had learned the very hard lesson of having a shocking conversation with someone that you have attended church with sometimes for decades. 
only to discover that the first time you have a direct conversation with them about the gospel, that they don't know it or don't believe it. Because church involvement does not mean salvation. That does not mean I know the gospel and submit to Jesus. An assumed gospel is a rejected gospel. And that starts in my own heart. If the gospel does not seem like impossibly good news to me, then I will feel no sense of urgency whatsoever to share it with you. If it doesn't seem like impossibly good news to us, then we have to ask if it has actually had any effect on us whatsoever. I want to be assured that I am not the one who has been trusting in my church attendance or my volunteering or or, or even being a staff member in a church in order to pay my dues and earn my entrance into heaven. But that I would be one and that my heart would be a heart that is surrendered entirely and in every way to my Jesus and that his life, his death, his resurrection and his lordship over my life in all things is the thing that I cling to. Church, we want to be people who can answer that question of the old catechism, what is my only hope in life and in death and be able to declare with confidence and with joy that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all of the power of the devil. And who also preserves me in such a way that apart from the will of my Father, not a single hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. I mean, that be the confident declaration of our hearts. And the confident declaration to those around us that do not yet know that kind of love of Jesus. Church, I don't know what broke in the church overall and in our hearts that made us believe the satanic lie that it is more important that people know what we stand against than that they are made in the very image of God, dearly and deeply loved by Him, and that Jesus came to save sinners just like them, just like me, and just like every single one of you in this room. We've got to put that lie to death because it is demonic and is hurting us. People are dying around us as a result of that apart from Jesus. 
when God has consumed us with the reality of who God is and what he has done, that he alone through his grace, he alone through his grace alone has rescued you and me from Satan and from death and from hell and from sin, then we can't wait to share that with others so that they don't have to spend one more minute of this life without Jesus. And eternity forever separated from him. We will share it with our families. We will share it with our friends. We will share that with our neighbors, those in our community. We will share it to the ends of the earth, not because we're trying to get people to join our club, but because we care about our fellow image bearer and that they would know how dearly and deeply loved they are. They don't have to continue to submit to the lies and the disordered desires that are killing them. I am ashamed of my own neglect of this recently and repent before God, before my church family. It must change. Church, it has to change. A missionary church shares the gospel with everyone who's willing to listen. The second marker of the missionary church is that it shares their people their very best. Jerusalem sees this movement of God that is taking place in Antioch and they send the encourager. They send their best. And then Antioch learns from what has been modeled to them and so they send out Barnabas and Saul In fact, Antioch becomes this missionary hub, this sending church that disciples and trains and then sends out missionaries all around the Mediterranean and Aegean seas. It's pretty extraordinary. And this church right here in little old Peshtigo, Wisconsin, has done the same thing over the last 40 years. Raising up and sending out families like the Nadalnis and the Langtows, who some of you got to meet last week as James baptized two of his sons, and the Robins, individuals like Nora Remmers, Claire Pollock, Archer Loop, and most recently Tiffany Ellinger. We, we send our very best, and we want to do that more and more and more. And more. We want to disciple. We want to train up. We want to equip and encourage and send and support more and more and more to the ends of the earth. And those who stay, we want to commit to the ongoing care and support and encouragement of those who are sent. Before traveling to India, where he would live for the next 41 years, until his death, William Carey, who's considered one of the fathers of the modern missionary movement and buddies with William Wilberforce and John Newton, told his friend, Andrew Fuller, 
I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. Great line, isn't it? And Fuller held the rope until his death over 20 years later by committing his life and his pastoral ministry to raising funds and awareness and writing regular letters to missionaries, to writing books, encouraging people to become missionaries and to support them and training up and sending out more and more missionaries. He formed uh, or was part of forming the Baptist Missionary Society in the UK, which still functions as a missionary sending organization to this day. Actually, fun fact, when he started it, he called it the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathens. Wow, that's right, huh? That's catchy. <laughs> Thankfully, early on, some early 1800s version of a branding expert came, bumped into him and was like, Andy, here's the thing, pal. That name's the worst. So they abbreviated that to the much more delightful and concise Baptist Missionary Society, which still functions, still sending, still supporting, Caring for and supporting missionaries is a whole church responsibility. It's one of the few all-in activities within the church. Some of you in this church pray for hours every day. And we need you to be praying for those who have left to live among the lost, to see them redeemed by Jesus. Some of you in this place are incredible encouragers. And we need you to regularly write to our missionaries to remind them that they are remembered, that they are loved, that they are prayed for. Some of you take very seriously the reality that nothing we have belongs to us, but has all been given to us as a gift and is meant to be given away for the sake of the kingdom. And you want to know how you can give to support missionaries. Some of you are called to be sent to go to the ends of the earth to bring the light of the gospel into the darkness. Maybe you don't know that yet. Maybe you do. But we want to help you with that. And we'll come back to you guys in just a minute. For all of you, I'd encourage you before you walk out of here today to reach into the seat pocket in front of you and grab one of those communication cards. Write your name and your email address on there and which one of those you think you are. Are you the prayer? Are you the encourager? Are you the supporter? Or are you a little concerned, maybe a little nervous, that you're supposed to go? Write that on that card, and you're going to hear from me this week. You can drop it in one of the offering boxes on your way out. You can leave it on the seat right there. If you don't want to see someone carrying, you don't want someone to see you carrying the card because you're afraid they're going to look at it and then hold you accountable to that. Feeling particularly bold, come on and hand it right to me.
I'll pray for you before you get out of here today. That that dovetails into the third marker is that the missionary church shares their resources. The missionary church shares their resources. This last little portion in here, it feels like it's it's different. feels like it's a, a different little event kind of sandwiched in there, but but Luke is important to point out, now in these days, as all these things are happening, so he ties it to what we just talked about. So as all this is happening in Antioch, these prophets came down from Jerusalem, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So Luke, looking back, goes, hey, you guys all remember the, you know, the Claudius famine. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Agabus the prophet warns them of this coming famine. And what is Antioch's response? Well, to prepare to take care of themselves. Oh, no, that's not what it said. It actually said the opposite of that. They prepared to take care of everyone else. So everyone, everyone according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers in Judea. So this church gathers together their funds to send to their brothers and sisters in the much less affluent Judea. Now, Let's be honest here, there's all sorts of fun stuff that we could be talking about with Agabus, right? But we're going to stay on track. Sorry. The, the missionary church shares their resources in supporting missionaries and in supporting other churches. We see all throughout the New Testament is missionaries who are working to share the gospel and plant churches, churches are sending their resources to help and support them. Planting new churches out of our own church is an important and biblical way to invest the resources of this church. And followers of Jesus and churches in areas that are struggling financially or maybe are dealing with with difficulties in their context or are facing a specific hardship is the church's responsibility to support other churches. All throughout the New Testament we see examples of this. Churches raising funds and sending them to other churches and sending them to missionaries, many of whom are not in really great situations themselves. The Philippian church was a persecuted church. Paul got violently run out of town and yet Paul mentions them in his letter as being his most faithful financial supporting church. He says, you alone supported me and met my needs. Church, we underestimate how much we actually have. We are a blessed church. And as a result, God has given us a responsibility with that, to bless others in that. And you may hear that and go, look, we are not exactly the wealthiest church in America. By no means. Drive through Dallas sometime. No, we're not the most wealthy church, but I don't know that Antioch was either since they were like 11 days old. 
No. But we have been blessed. We have been blessed with people and with resources. And we certainly have more blessing than the church that I attended in a tent in Africa or in a living room in Mexico and in Russia in the front yard of an orphanage in Haiti, or even churches just on the other side of our own town, which have just a couple dozen faithful people trying to love and follow Jesus. We are blessed. Praise Jesus for that. And that blessing is meant to be used to bless others. So let's praise Jesus even more by figuring out how to do that together. As we wrap up, I keep speaking about the missionary church, but I do want to be clear. We could replace that adjective with a lot of other options or even drop it altogether. We could say the faithful church, the biblical church, the obedient church, or just the church. Because being a sending and giving church is not one of the options of how to do church. It's what the biblical church is. And quite honestly, the church in a country begins to die on the vine when the church cares more about protecting what they have than they do about sharing what they have been given. The church is the gathering of the followers of Jesus who submit to his kingship over our entire lives, every aspect, and therefore seek to obey his commands to love God with everything that we have and everything that we are and to love our neighbors, including our enemies, at least as much as we love ourselves and to make disciples in our town, in our region, in our country and to the ends of the earth. Anything less than that is less than what Jesus intends for his church. And I don't know about you, church, but I would really love to live in all of the fullness of the abundant life that our Jesus has promised us in following him. I'd, I would love to see a great number of people believe the gospel be saved by Jesus and be trained up by church leaders to be sent out in order to see an even greater number of people believe the gospel and be saved by Jesus and be trained up by church leaders to be sent out. So I look forward to receiving and praying over the cards this week to see how we can mobilize in order to be sent and to send, and to support. And right now, I'm going to ask Jason to come back up here, and we're going to pray over these chairs. Because what these chairs represent up here are either a family or an individual that we believe God is calling from this church to be sent. Maybe you belong in this seat. 
Maybe as I just said that right now, something in your gut went, uh-oh. I think I'm supposed to be sitting in that chair. So I want all of us, all of you who, who profess to be followers of God and who want to see his kingdom expanded, we're going to pray that God would reveal to the people who belong in these chairs that they belong in these chairs. That if right now everything in you is going, well, I'll definitely pray for whoever that's supposed to be because it's not me. When you go home, you are haunted. (laughs) Haunted. Every time you close your eyes, you just see this dumb chair. (laughs) Go, the chair. There it is again, the chair. I can't get away from the chair. Yeah, it's because you're supposed to be sitting in it. You belong here. We're going to pray that God would prepare the leadership of this church to steward those families and those individuals well, to train them, to disciple them, to encourage them, to equip them, and to send them. We're going to pray that God would stir in our hearts the desire to support, to encourage, and to hold the rope and not let go. And we're going to pray that God would use the lives of the families or individuals who belong in these chairs to see a great many people believe the gospel, be saved by Jesus, and become disciple-making disciples. Please pray with me. God, we... grossly underestimate the joy and the privilege that it is to be yours and to be about your mission. How we beg that you would stir in our spirits, stir in our hearts, how to awaken our sleepy souls to the unimaginable, impossibly good news of your gospel and what it means for us and that it would stir in us such a deep love for you that it would overflow into a love for those around us that need you. God, we pray for this church family that you would stir in the hearts and the minds of people in this church to say, I want to go. I want to go to the other side of town. I want to go to another city. I want to go to another country. I want to go to a place where people do not know the name Jesus so that I can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Stir in us the mandate of sending and being sent that we would want to see that. We would want to see your kingdom expand and that you would give us the courage and the conviction to walk in that together. Jesus, I pray for the heart in this room right now that right now feels really uncomfortable and is wondering if they belong here. God, I pray, Spirit, that you would not call us in reluctance but you would give us a sheer joy, a delight in the idea of being used by you in ways that are so beyond our own ability and gifting.
And may the people praise you as a result of our proclamation of your gospel right where we are and to the ends of the earth. Amen.